Well, good morning. We are continuing our romp through the book of Revelation today. We have a lot to cover, so we're just going to jump in. I'm going to start with prayer, and then we'll go. Gracious God in heaven, we gather together this morning uh, with gratitude in our hearts for your great love for us, for your willingness to forgive our sins over and over and over, for your patience for us as we strive towards holiness but continue to stumble in this world of sin and temptation. We thank you that your mercy and your desire to forgive is greater than our capacity for sin. And we ask that as we spend time in your word this morning, we find renewed strength and renewed resolve to continue our march towards holiness. That we get better at hearing your word and then acting according to your word. That we listen better to the Holy Spirit who seeks to help guide us and direct us. And that we find, we, we hear and we find the application for us in today's text that's included in these letters to the churches. We pray in the name of Jesus, who willingly died in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as you know, uh, if you've been following along or have been here before or paying attention, uh, we're spending pretty much one Sunday looking at each of the seven letters um, to the seven churches that begin the book of Revelation. And, and we think this is important. Um, it's, it's necessary for a couple of reasons. The first is, as we have discussed, these seven churches are emblematic. They're representative of all churches in all ages. Um, meaning that the problems, the issues, the concerns that they're dealing with in their church at that time applied then, they have applied in every church and every age since then, and they will continue to apply to every church until Jesus comes back. And we struggle with these issues uh, to varying degrees. Uh, the particulars of the struggle may vary a little bit, but the issues and the warnings portrayed in these letters to the seven churches are universal and timeless. So we think it's important to go over those. The second reason we're spending time on these uh, seven letters is they are the primary message, uh, this, this message to these churches. It's the heart, it's the core of the letter, the book of Revelation. Jesus told John, write this message to the churches, and everything else flows out of that. So this is the fundamental part of the book. This is what we need to know. This, this is how they, this, the, these seven churches, and this is how we are going to be prepared to endure and even thrive in the tribulations to come. And these messages, as we're seeing, serve as both encouragement and warning in most cases. Smyrna, last week, mostly encouragement. And the encouragement was, you've been walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Continue to walk worthy of and then remain faithful, persevere, endure, worship the God who's made all of this possible for you. And the warning they got wasn't really a warning so much, just a, a reminder. Reject the world system and its nefarious influences. Pay attention to your weaknesses. Shore up your defenses because you need to be prepared to struggle with and stand against the world system that is currently controlled by Satan. And then chapters four on, we're going to see how all that's going to play out, has been playing out. So the vision given to John shows us how Satan has and continues to impact and influence and to the degree that God allows, controls the world around us. So Revelation is at times, it's a battle manual for survival, but it's primarily an encouragement to show us how the believer can emerge victorious. 
And so far, we've heard how Ephesus has lost their first love. Uh, they, they were commanded, commended rather, for standing for truth, for rejecting false doctrine. Uh, but they've been called out for what appears to be maybe a diminished capacity for love outside the church walls. They, they were long on truth, but short on grace. Um, maybe they'd softened the message so, so they were lose, potentially losing their Christian identity, just to kind of maybe blend in a little. So Ephesus was called to continue to stand for truth. But don't neglect love and compassion for others in the process. Remember your first love. Remember your love for Christ, and, and flowing out of that, your love for others. Now, in our day... This is still an applicable message. We can easily get caught up in, you know, politics, for example, uh, rights and, and freedoms. Those aren't bad things. But we can lose sight of the fact that as followers of Christ, we're called to be missionaries of the gospel first. So keep our priorities, keep our priorities straight. Let's not lose our distinctive Christian identity. We heard last week about Smyrna. They got a pretty healthy report card overall. They dealt with some challenges, some slander from the Jewish community. Um, they've rejected false teachers. Um, but they're, they're living in poverty, probably as a result of their Christian faith, their stand for Christ. But they're considered spiritually rich. And they didn't receive a rebuke. They got kind of a warning, really. Don't fear about, do not fear what you are about to suffer. It said, do not fear what you're about to suffer. That's the kind of encouragement you want, huh? So they're going to face a period of trial and tribulation and suffering, but it also says when we suffer for the cause of Christ, we can take comfort in knowing that God knows all about it, and he's put parameters on it. They were told 10 days, which probably didn't mean 10 days, but it meant it wasn't going to go on forever. It had defined limits to it. And even if it leads to death for some, fear not, for those who endure suffering, for the cause of Christ will receive the crown of life. That's an encouragement. That's a pretty nice little bonus. Well, now we're on to the third church, the church in Pergamum. It's a little bit different than the church in Smyrna. If you've read ahead, it's a lot a bit different than the church in Smyrna. Let's start with the first verse. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, Al has mentioned this already, I think. I'm going to mention it again because I find this fascinating and thoughtful and significant. But in every one of these letters to the seven churches, there's a pattern that develops. And the pattern is that the opening to these letters refers back to some element of the description of the vision of Jesus we found in the first chapter. You can see how that lays out here. So we're down to right here. And it says, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That That was part of the description of Jesus from the first chapter, the vision of Jesus. So this is just to remind us, I think, remind each of these churches that the letter they're about to get, the message they're about to receive, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This came from Jesus. It's a message from God, given to Jesus, and then disseminated through John and this this angel. And this double-edged sword is capable of delivering both truth and justice. We want to keep that in mind as we look at this church in particular. Next verse. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. There's a lot of stuff here. So it starts off with, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This seems harsh. Uh, This is not just a casual, boy, your city or your culture, you know, you've kind of taken a turn to the dark side. Um, what people might say, I don't know, about the U.S. of A. right now. Um, but this says where Satan's throne is. 
This implies more than just dark influences, right? I mean, we think of a throne as the home of a king. It's where the king's residence is. It's where he resides. It's where he dwells. So when we read, this is where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, it's pretty heavy. We need some context, maybe, to help understand why this says what it does. So here's the lowdown on Pergamum. In its heyday, Pergamum was a thriving city. At one time, it was the Roman capital of Asia Minor. It had about 200,000 people or so, probably. And with the help of Rome, uh, they, they had uh, built um, temples and theaters and amphitheaters. We'll see a picture in a minute. Um, and temples. Many, many temples were in Pergamum. Pergamon was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple dedicated to emperor, emperor worship, which is probably the Temple of Trajan down here. In fact, they, they still like to refer to themselves as the temple warden for all emperor worship, even though Ephesus maybe had become a bigger center by this point. But it was a leading center of worship of the god emperor, and, and you'll remember that emperor worship was required So Pergamum was also the center of the cult of Asclepius. Asclepius was a man who had gained a reputation as a great healer. He was highly sought after to provide his healing services. In fact, over time, a training center, the Asclepium, was developed. It was established. It became uh, one of the the most famous and sought-after healing centers and training centers in the world at the time. Over time, Asclepius became so legendary and so mythic that he came to be considered a god. Interestingly, the symbol for Asclepius became a single serpent wrapped around a staff. Uh, Pergamon was the home of the Sacred Way. It was just this major thoroughfare that had so many temples in its vicinity became known as the Sacred Way. Pergamon was the home of the Serapium, which is a large temple to the Egyptian cult that worshipped Serapis, the Egyptian god of the underworld. Sounds dark. Serapis was known as a healer, particularly of the blind. So they were actually importing gods from other worlds and cultures into Pergamum. You can see there also that very steep amphitheater. It's kind of a modern marvel of the time. Um, but it was, this was a well-established, well-founded city. Pergamum also had a cone-shaped hill within the city confines, and on the top of that hill were a number of other cultic temples, um, including perhaps the most famous, the, a large altar dedicated to Zeus and Athena. So they had their, their god base covered. <clears throat> and of course, there was always the temple to Dionysus. What well-respecting city in Asia Minor didn't have a temple to Dionysus? There was one of those there too. So even though all of these different temples and different cults had their own collection of followers and, and devotees, and they would all say that they were committed to their own particular deity— We know, and from Jesus' perspective here, that all of those different little g-gods were really just different names and different faces for good old Satan. This was all worship of demons. Hence, with the enormous and varied presence of competing false gods, it's not hyperbolic to say that Pergamum was the home of Satan's throne. The Pergamese, I don't know what they refer to themselves as, but the Pergamese were overrun with false gods and false teachers. And then all of those associated rituals and practices and things that went along with those. So it's no small thing here when Jesus says, and John writes, you are in the presence of the very throne of Satan. You dwell where he dwells. And yet, 
you hold fast to my name. Do you feel the weight of that now? And yet, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith. So when we see this in context, this really is quite an attaboy for this church. To be surrounded by cults and temples, by all of the associated cultic activity, temple prostitutes and Bacchanalian adventures of all sorts and pagan festivals, even political trade union and peer pressure to join in all of those things, to be surrounded by all of this all the time and hold fast to the name of Jesus. Well done, church. And it says, even, what ha- even after what happened to Antipas, you held firm. Now, we're not really told what that was exactly, except he was killed. But even when he was killed, when, when he was martyred, really, the church held fast. Now, one church legend has it that Antipas was a physician who was teaching or, or, and propagating Christianity. He was proselytizing as he was healing. And the other healers, primarily those who followed Asclepius, members of the medical guild, they accused him of being disloyal to Caesar. Now, Caesar was a worse offense than just going against the guild. So they accused him of being disloyal to Caesar. He wasn't worshiping in the prescribed manner for the guild either. He wasn't worshiping Asclepius. He wouldn't follow their science, which included worship of their god. And so they marched him through the streets. And as they marched him through the streets, an executioner walked in front of him holding out a big sword. So everybody would know. Everybody would know that Antipas was about to lose his head as a result of his failure to get in line with the worship of the false god. And lose his head he did. That's version one. Version two, which I find more fascinating, version two says they placed Antipas inside a copper bull. All the rest was the same. He wouldn't do what they wanted him to do, but they put him inside a copper bull, which was then heated over a fire until it was red hot. So they cooked him or boiled him or broiled him. We're not really sure how all that worked, but he was inside this copper bull and they killed him. So they took their little G-God worship pretty seriously in Pergamum. Now, whether he was beheaded or reheated, Antipas held fast to the name of Christ. He did not deny the faith. He did not yield to the temptation of the world. He did not yield to the demands of the cults and their little G-gods, and he was killed as a result of his steadfastness. Now, this is mentioned specifically in this letter because in some quarters, martyrdom can have kind of a chilling effect on the faithful. Especially if you're broiling inside a copper bowl. I mean, people would, would, watch, would watch that and think, you know, I'm, I mean, I think I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm not sure I believe that much. But the church here is commended for staying steady even after the death of Antipas, who was a faithful witness, it says, here in Pergamum, where Satan dwells. So the church is off to a pretty good start, you know, kudo-wise. But it's not all sunlight and moonbeams for this church. That was the good bit. Here comes the rest, starting in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So for starters, even though, you know, on the whole, you're holding up pretty well, you're holding fast to my name, you're not denying the faith, you do have some in your midst who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. If that doesn't ring any bells, he gives us a little more description. 
right? Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And at this point, you're reading through and thinking, man, that sounds like a very specific reference. That's a very detailed reference. There has to be a story here, and there is. We find the story of Balaam and Balak back in Numbers 22. Israel had left Egypt. They were heading towards the promised land, and they had met fierce opposition along the way. Many battles, they had won them all, uh, and other people groups in the area now know that they're coming, and they're becoming increasingly uneasy, and they're feeling threatened by this large, mobile, seemingly God-protected group. So as the Israelites begin to move closer, Balak, the king of Moab, decides to try another route, something other than armed conflict. It had not worked well for all of the other kings. So Balak reaches out to Balaam and offers him cash, payment of some sort, to cast a spell or put a curse on Israel so that if battle actually happened, maybe the Moabites would have an advantage. Now, Balaam wasn't an Israelite. He was a seer. He was a diviner. He was a a prophet of some sort, a spiritualist for hire, a prophet for profit, not unlike many in our day. So even... Even though Balak's not an Israelite, Balaam rather, when he was approached, for some reason he decided to consult with God first. So Balaam consults with God. These Israelites were coming. The king wants me to cast a spell. And God said, no, you cannot cast a spell on these people. You cannot put a curse on them because I have blessed them. So Balaam told the king. The king wasn't pleased. He offered more money to Balaam. Well, let's just do it anyway. Balaam's intrigued. So he goes to the Lord again. He says, okay, I got even more money now. Can't I put a curse on these people? And the Lord says, no, I have blessed them. You cannot curse them. But play along with the king here a little bit. Let's just see where this goes. Now I got to skip ahead a little bit. It's a long, interesting story with angels and talking donkeys and whatnot. And it goes on for several chapters. But eventually, Balaam refuses to lay out a curse. But at some point, he offers advice to the king of Moab. I mean, that's not really made clear until chapter 31 of Numbers, when Moses actually has this lament, and he blames Israel's current sinful state on Balaam's advice. Which apparently went something like, all right, king, don't rush into battle with these, with these Israelites here. You don't, you don't, know to go, you don't need to go to battle, because you're likely not going to win in the first place. But let's take the longer view. Maybe you should just let them hang around in this area for a while. Let the men see your attractive women folk. Send your women out to seduce the men of Israel. Then let your people entice the Israelites into into joining in your pagan practices. Tempt them into situations that cause a conflict with their moral code. Lead them into temptation and deliver them to evil. You don't need to defeat them militarily when you can defeat them spiritually. We see this in Numbers 25. When Israel lived in Shedem, in that area, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, a false god. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So Balaam knew that the power of the Israelites came from their God. And he said, you can conquer this group without a battle. 
Just lure them into sin. Lure them away from their God. You can get them to eat food sacrificed to idols, which really meant worshiping false gods. It, it, it kind of encompassed idolatry of all sorts. You can tempt them into sexual immorality of all sorts. And that's just not just limited to sexual activity, but it, it kind of meant a moral decay on all fronts. So when we see food offered to idols and sexual immorality, it's just kind of moral decay of all kinds. You can get them to move away from their big G God and towards your little G gods. Just give them the opportunity and the encouragement to sin. And isn't that often how Satan works on us? Rarely do we get a frontal spiritual attack, a full-on assault. It happens. But often it's just a chipping away at our moral foundations. It's often a long, steady erosion of our character and our values, brought on by external influences, maybe, but eventually it leads us into this kind of leisurely slide into sin. And then we see here the result of it. The anger of the Lord was kindled. And he's applying this to Pergamum. Here's a similar situation. There are some in your church who are advocating, actively teaching this easy, friendly, welcoming, and affirming attachment to popular pagan culture. And the people of God, some of the people of God, are being seduced into sin. Now, remember, at this stage, some of the early converts to Christianity would have been coming out of these pagan practices. They would have been fully understanding and experienced with all of these things going on. It would have been a familiar thing for them to do. So perhaps they thought, these new converts, well, what's wrong with eating food presented to the gods. We've, I mean, we've done that forever. What's wrong with joining in their sexual practices? Perhaps they didn't know better yet. Perhaps some in the church were encouraging them to continue to participate. Now, you remember Paul dealt with some of the same issues in Corinth. And part of his concern in Corinth was, was that the, the, the social context, or there was an improper understanding of eating food offered to idols. It might lead believers and unbelievers alike into more serious sin. It wasn't that the food itself was the problem. It was all of the other circumstances and context around it. So this lack of understanding might cause confusion. It might send mixed signals. It might lead to some moral confusion. Now, idle food is not really an issue for us today. I've never been to anyone's house. And they said, oh, by the way, this casserole I picked up at the temple today and... That's just never been an issue. But we have lots of other ways that we dabble with idolatry. I mean, materialism is always the, one that, the first one that comes to mind for me. Our attachment to our stuff. It can be a driving force. It can, it can lead us to want to acquire more stuff. And so we work harder and we work longer to acquire more wealth and more stuff. And over time, we forget about God in the process, that he's the source of all that we have anyway. And he gets kind of pushed aside. Materialism has become an item of fixation and worship, whether we admit it or not. I think another big one we're seeing in our day is, man, we tend to worship ourselves. One of the bigger issues we're dealing with right now is our focus on identity, because it's all about me and my identity. And sadly, I think we're seeing many, many hurt people work so hard to to identify with their own created sense of self, they reject the person that God made them to be. And it causes struggle and hurt and pain. This focus on ourself. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but man, have we become big worshipers of science. I'm not anti-science. I believe in gravity. But this whole issue of science has been made, made into an issue of supreme faith for many. So this idea of food offered to idols, not an issue for us, but we've got all kinds of other idols that we, that we struggle with. And Paul's advice to Corinth was, flee idolatry. All of it. Search it out and destroy it. Whatever it looks like in your life, deal with it. Don't dabble with it. Don't play with it. Don't think you have a system figured out where you can snuggle up right close to the line of sin, not sin, and think you're in control of it. You will lose. Don't listen to those teachers who say materialism is a sign of God's blessing. Like all the prosperity gospel guys, for example. They're literally laying out a roadmap for sin, like Balaam did for Balak. So we have Antipas, who was hailed as a faithful witness. Some in the church, we're told, some in the church are right now in your church are being unfaithful witnesses. Rather than being in but not of the world, they become involved both in and of. They want to have it all. The same is true with the reference to sexual immorality. Again, the, the warning here is that some in your church are teaching or holding to the teaching of Balaam. I don't think this church is yet to the point where sexual sin or idolatry is running rampant in the church but that the church needs to be careful at this point. The tipping point may be closer than you think. You need to be aware of what's being taught and how people are are interacting with the culture. So the church here has just been commended for their faith and their steadfastness in spite of all the pressures and, and socially acceptable opportunities for sin. We have a lot of those. And still they've not denied the faith. Even though they're being warned about food offered to idols and sexual immorality, the real warning here, it seems to me, is against those who are teaching or advocating or influencing moral and social compromise. So the issue is, what will the church do about these false teachers? How how is your church going to deal with this doctrine, with this bad teaching, this bad theology? Are the elders, or the, the church leaders, are the mature Christians in the group, are they willing to stand against and deal with false teachers and false teaching? Now, next week, the church of Thyatira will see the logical consequence of what happens when you don't deal with it. But the emphasis here seems to be on, on what's the church going to allow from their teachers, from their leaders, from their influencers. Does the teaching, does the, the influence of the church lead us closer to the throne of Christ or closer to the throne of Satan? Because we see here a reference to the Nicolaitans as well. Right? And not, a, not a lot is known about them, but most scholars believe that Nicholas, from whom the movement was named, he taught a doctrine of compromise. That seems consistent with how it's used in Scripture. That the, this separation between Christian practice and pagan practice wasn't really all that important. It, it's okay if you blend some of these things together. And what is known about Nicholas is that he had a background, probably an upbringing, uh, deep roots anyway, in paganism and the occult. So from his biased and, and perhaps darkly skewed perspective, the mingling of the two, occult and Christianity, wasn't really a problem. Jesus thought differently. The Nicolaitans were already mentioned in the first letter to Ephesus, which was another center of pagan activity. And Jesus, in that first letter, said he hated the Nicolaitans. You've done a good job refuting them, 
you hate them like I do. Now, it stands to reason here when Jesus says he hates them, he wasn't talking about how casually they dressed for Sunday service or the fact that they had drums, you know, on the stage. He hated them for their teaching and their doctrine. How it was misleading people into easy compromise with sin. So the issue is, will the church in Pergamum continue to allow false teachers in their midst? Or will they continue to stand for truth? Will they, will they deal with it? And I think this begs the question for us. When we look around our current church landscape, our churches today, this church included, are we teaching the word of God even if it means we stand against the tide of popular culture? Are we allowing bad theology and bad ideas to kind of fester and, and boil up from, from within? Or are, are we flowing along with the culture? Are we going along to get along? You know, we don't want to stand out. We don't want people to call us names. We don't want to be perceived as intolerant. We don't want to be called ignorant or science haters. We don't want to get caught up in all this gender, sexual identity, confusion stuff. Can't we just love everybody? You know, just accept everybody? So how are churches dealing with these issues? on a doctrinal, theological, Christ-centered, word-preaching, people-loving kind of way. Well, I think we would all admit we certainly live in a multicultural, polytheistic society. We've got competing temples on every corner. Our situation is not at all different from the church in Pergamum. I mean, maybe we're, you know, shinier and better marketed. That's about it. Teachers of false doctrines are literally coming to our doorsteps. And are we allowing them, are we allowing their influence into our churches? Have we remained faithful to the word of God above all else? Are the leaders of the church, our church, teaching what ought to be taught, and are we speaking out against what ought not be taught? I had to practice saying that. I found this interesting. Every two years, uh, Lifeway and Ligonier puts together this survey of beliefs, survey of beliefs in the U.S. Um, and a couple of these just kind of jumped out in context of what we're discussing here. So they, they send the survey out, and there's a series of statements, and then you list whether you agree or disagree with these statements. So one of the, one of the statements was, God accepts worship of all religions. In 2016, 48% of self-professed evangelicals agreed that God accepts worship of all religions. Now in 2020, it dropped to 42%. We're making progress, right? I mean, improvement is good. But 42% of self-professed evangelicals, so-called Christians, believe that God equally accepts worship from all religions. Even though Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So, 42% either don't believe the words of Jesus, or maybe they don't know the words of Jesus because they're not being taught, although we all have some responsibility on our own. Or maybe they've heard it, and they know it, but they just don't want to offend all of those other people. There's another one. It said, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 
2016, 54% of self-professed evangelicals agreed that people are just good by nature. And doesn't that describe the world around us? But by 2020, 46%. Again, movement in the right direction. But 46% of Christians still agree. Everyone sins a little. But people are basically good. This seems to be in direct conflict with biblical teaching like the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. All men have inherited the sin nature of Adam. So unfortunately, these responses by a large portion of the church just don't square with Scripture, which means either we don't know or aren't teaching the Word of God as we should. Or, I guess it could mean that we're capitulating, we're compromising with wider spread, wider spread cultural beliefs, so just we don't offend people. We're co-opting pagan or secular beliefs into Christianity. We're becoming increasingly syncretistic. We're blending all of these various belief systems together. Well, how are modern churches doing on the sexual immorality front? We don't even really need to discuss it, do we? I mean, in many churches now, far too many churches, we do these nice little four-week or six-week sermon series that deal with happy, good things. We don't deal with any bad things or any warnings. We neglect to talk about the moral value of sex being reserved for marriage between a man and a woman because, you know, sexual freedom has become so commonplace and we don't want to offend people. We want them coming back. So let's not talk about things that matter. Most mainstream denominations have identified as welcoming and affirming towards alternative sexual lifestyles in our time. Now, I'm perfectly okay with the welcoming part. The church should be open to anyone who wants to learn the truth of God's word. But part of hearing and knowing the truth means being willing to change the things that we need to change to get our lives in line with it. Changing those things that God's word considers to be sin. So from the basis of God's word, I have a hard time seeing how affirming alternative sexual lifestyles can even be an option. But many have been willing to put aside the word of God to go along, to get along. They're holding to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And this leads to separation from God. Which is why the church is then told, repent. It's a word we don't hear enough. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And there's the sword again. Repent. If or when you find yourself in this, this situation, this category of being too compromised, if you find yourself yielding to idolatry in any of its forms, if you find yourself yielding to sexual sin in any of its forms, repent. Literally, turn around. Go in a different direction. Do a 180. Flee from sin and run towards the God who saves and forgives. Repent. Now remember, this letter is written to the church. This is written to believers in the church. Those of us who claim to believe in the word of God and who are trying to walk worthy, if you fall short, repent. Because it won't end well for you if you don't. 
Churches, hold your teachers accountable. Church members, hold your teachers accountable. Study the Bible for yourself. Know if what they're teaching is right or not. Don't allow false teaching, which is a doctrine of demons, to get a foothold in your church. Now, it's interesting, I think, this call to repentance, it's directed to the people in the church. This letter is written to the church. But it's also directed to the church. It's not just Pergamum, it's to the church, remember. Which means we're all called individually to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, but we're also called to help look out for our other brothers and sisters as well. We are to provide some, account, some accountability for our church. To uphold the testimony of the church. So that we're faithful in general to the world watching. So when we see a brother or sister failing, how can we come alongside and try to help? And not in a judgy, finger-wagging kind of way, but in a, whatever your sin, God's grace is bigger repent. Whatever you're failing, God's mercy is more. So how can I help you deal with with whatever it is you're struggling with? How can we pray for you? How can we help move you from sin to repentance? Because the consequence of failure here is pretty dire. Repent, the Lord says, or I will come soon with that aforementioned sword. The sword of truth and justice. So if you ignore the truth part, you will see the justice part. And he even puts it here in terms of war. I will come and war against the wrongdoers, the persistent and unrepentant sinners, those teachers of lies and and demon doctrines, those who lead others into sin. I will bring war against them. So think about that from a slightly different perspective. What that says is our spiritual life and well-being is so important to our Savior. He's willing to do battle for us. Hopefully, prayerfully, not against us. But this ought to capture our attention. This is serious business. There's also encouragement. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He who has an ear... Let him hear. This is another part of the pattern that's in these seven churches. This phrase is included in every letter. So, essentially, this is saying, this is a spiritual message for spiritually minded people and others who may be willing to hear it. But this is to the believers in the church. You need to pay attention to what's being said. You need to be sure you catch this. To those who conquer. To those who reject the allure of the Moabite women. Or in our day, to those who reject syncretism, the the blending and cheapening of Christianity with these other pagan religions. To those who claim to be spiritual, maybe, but can't really explain what they mean by it. To those who, who reject the pull towards sexual immorality and stay true to God's morality. Or those who have fallen, but repent and get back on track. To those conquerors. Jesus says, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except him who receives it. So this is the encouragement part. This is the reward for staying faithful. And it has the feel and the sound of a blessing, even if we have no idea what this means. 
Well, we know that the Lord supplied manna, right? I mean, he literally supplied food from heaven to the Israelites wandering in the desert. He supplied what they were lacking. He gave them exactly what they needed when they needed it, even if it wasn't what they necessarily wanted for every meal for quite some time. He supplied their needs. The Lord will help us conquer. He will give us what we need along the way. The power of the indwelling spirit, for starters. But it's it's hidden manna, and the hidden manna may refer to this elaborate feast for which we are being prepared that is still to come. It's hidden from us now for a short while. It's hidden from us in our struggle to remain faithful. But it's this promise that we can look forward to till the day when all the conquerors are gathered, all those who've remained faithful in the face of temptation. We're going to join in this great marriage supper of the Lamb. That's something to look forward to. That's a promise. We know that the hidden manna was in the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could access. But one day, all faithful believers, all conquerors, are going to be allowed to approach the throne of grace and share in this great feast. And of course, we can't miss the obvious connection here between Jesus providing food from heaven and the warning to us not to eat food offered to idols. We are to avoid the lie of of pleasure and fulfillment that's often associated with sin and idolatry. And we are to rely instead on the promises of God, the word of God, the bread of life, that is true and trustworthy. In the case of the manna part, maybe, maybe we can make some connection there. But how is a white rock a reward? The conquerors will receive a white stone with a new name written on it, a name no one knows except the one who receives it. I mean, it sounds exclusive. It sounds kind of cool. We're all going to have our own little rock. You know? And knowing people, you know, wouldn't we all be going, I think my rock's a little bigger than yours. I'm probably a little more blessed than you are. Just saying. Well, there's a couple of ideas about what might be involved in this. One is that in the Greek legal system, the jury members who served on the jury would vote at the end of the trial on the guilt or innocence of the accused, and they would present a stone, black if they were guilty, white if they were innocent. So a white stone might be indicative of our innocence, our freedom from the consequences of our sin as a result of our faithfulness to Christ. We've been found innocent. In Roman territories, a customized white stone was often used for admission into special events or private parties, kind of like our you know, RSVP fancy invitations now. If you didn't have the correct white stone, this invitation or a wristband or whatever else we might clue, you know, think about today, then you weren't admitted to this private party. So maybe this serves as our admission into this great marriage feast of the Lamb. You've been invited, you personally invited to the special party. And the last option, we, we, we know how ancient Rome loved their games, their big sporting spectacles, right? And oftentimes, the winners of the games, the conquerors, the victors, the winners, they were given white stones with their names engraved, and that served as their ticket to a lavish feast that was held in their honor for being conquerors. It was an acknowledgement of achievement and honor. As for the new name part, I don't know. Perhaps it's a reference to the the new man, the new self that we have put on. 
our faithfulness, our endurance, our standing firm, that all the things the church was commended for earlier, our faithfulness will be rewarded with a new name. And it worked for Abraham and Sarah and Paul, right? Maybe we're going to be given new names. Maybe it's a sign of the, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. It's calling us to holiness. It brought about enough change in them that it caused them to change their name. Maybe we'll get a new name. Or it could be some version of the name of God himself. Claiming us as his own. You are now part of my tribe. We're sealed to him for eternity as an heir, as an adopted son or daughter. It's confirming for us that we are now part of God and our name is written in his book of life. Whatever it may be, it seems clear. And the encouragement here really is that in spite of the challenges of this life, in spite of the temptation that we are all going to surely face, even if it's persecution and and suffering and death, stay the course. Don't deny the faith. Be conquerors. There is a reward. There is a benefit. There is an eternity of reward for our faithfulness. So I pray that we have ears to hear all that's contained in this letter. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a, what a letter this is. What a book this is. Uh, we are grateful. We thank you for the insights that can be found here. I pray that we continue to walk worthy, both individually as, as members of this congregation, but also corporately. That when people hear the name of, of Grace Fellowship, they would have good things to say, even if the good things are, man, they seem a little uptight. They seem a little strict. They're not fitting in with the rest of the world. Lord, I pray that we have courage to stand against the right things and openness to deal with people who believe differently than we do, willingness to to work with, talk to people who believe differently than we do. I pray that we continue to be lights and lampstands in the darkness around us. Give us a heart for others, both in and out of the church. And when the days get hard and, and trials set in and persecution arises, even if it leads to death, Lord, give us strength. Remind us of this encouragement that we can ultimately be victors and conquerors because we have put our faith and we have put our trust in the great conqueror. We thank you for your overwhelming patience as we try to sort this all out. In Jesus' name, amen.